uh, to begin this week's Parsha is Parsha's Lachacha. And the Torah says at the beginning of the Parsha that after, uh, because there was a famine in Eretz Canaan, so Sarah and Avraham decided to go to Mitzrayim. So the Torah says, When they got close to Mitzrayim, Avraham said to Sarah, his wife, now I know that you're a beautiful woman. When the Egyptians will see you, and they will say, this is his wife. They're going to kill me, and they're going to let you live. Say that you're my sister in order that uh, they should make it good for me and make allow me to live because of you. So there's all this, this whole passage is, uh, is rich with uh, all discussion exactly what Avraham was asking, um, what's the significance, how did he know right now, that he, how did he, why did he realize now that she was beautiful, what's the point of being beautiful, etc. But uh, this evening I'd like to talk about a topic which is sort of related to a medrash plea, which is a medrash in um, a unbelievable medrash on this pasuk. And the medrash is like this, that from here we learn, the medrash says, from here we learn that if a, somebody is sick on Shabbos, that one is allowed to shecht for them. So we know that one of the uh, one of the 39 categories of work is enumerated in... in uh, in the uh, tractate Shabbos on page 70, in the Mishnah, the Mishnah says that there are 39 categories of work. One of them is taking in the Shabbos. So one is not allowed to shecht an animal, one is not allowed to slaughter an animal on Shabbos. So the man says, you learn from this Pasuk that Abraham said to his wife that she, he should say that you're my sister. From here we learn that one is allowed to transgress the Shabbos in order to save somebody who's not well. So the question, <laughs> the question that everybody asks uh, is is that uh, this medrash makes no sense because this medrash, how is this medrash related at all to uh, to this pasuk at all? Right, that's the question. So everybody uh, who's wrote commentaries on the medrash has a commentary on this statement. So uh, one of those commentaries is the Ksaf Sofer, the son of the Chassam Sofer, Rabbi Moshe Sofer, the son of Rabbi Moshe Sofer. Um, in his commentary on the Parsha, he says the following. He says, we all know that the, the Gemara says in Tractate Yuma, page 85b, that one is allowed to transgress the Torah uh, in order to save their own life. Right? It says, because it says in Parsha's Achimos, you should live by the mitzvot. It says Shmuel in uh, Tractate Yuma, 85b, and not die by the mitzvot. So one is not obligated to die for the mitzvahs. But the question is, that's true about oneself. But how does one know that one is allowed to do it for somebody else? That tells you, you should live by the mitzvahs and not die by the mitzvahs. But how do you know that one is allowed to also not die by the mitzvahs when they're doing it for somebody else, on somebody else's behalf? In other words, how does one know that one is allowed to transgress the mitzvahs? For example, to perhaps maybe shecht an animal on Shabbos in order to save somebody who's sick, in order that they should live. How do you know that? So it says the Kasab Sajr, we learn it from the six Pasha, of course, from this Pasuk. How do you learn it? Because you see that Avram said to Sarah, tell them you're my sister. Okay, fine. 
because if you're my wife, they're going to kill me, and they, you're going to live. That's what's going to happen. Now, if they kill him, they're married. Abraham and Sarah are married. So as long as she's married to him, she is an Ashish. She is a married woman. If they kill him first, then she's no longer a married woman. Right? If they kill him. If they don't kill him, she is a married woman. So if they have relations with her, if they take her while she's still married to him, then they're having relations with a married woman. If they kill him first, they're not having relations with a married woman. Right? So what did Abraham say? Abraham said that, tell them you're my sister so they shouldn't kill me. But it comes out, right, it comes out that if she tells them they're a sister and they don't kill him, and somebody else marries her, then they're going to be having a relationship with a married woman. How does Avram sanction Sarai to have relations as a married woman with somebody else by claiming the fact that she is Avram's sister? He should have said, good, let them kill me. This way you won't be a married woman and you won't transgress uh, having uh, relations out of wedlock and be better. So how does he allow her to say that she's a sister and her having relations as a, as a married woman? Answer is, one is permitted to transgress a, to- a Torah prohibition in order to save somebody else. So therefore, Sarai would be allowed to claim that she is Abraham's sister and, st- and he would be alive and she would stay a married woman and she would be able to have relations with somebody else in order that Abraham should not die. So from here we learn that one is also allowed to make sure that somebody else lives by transgressing uh, a, a mitzvah in the Torah. Now, I'm not sure if this is the halacha. I don't know. Because, because it's definitely true that one is allowed to transgress a mitzvah in the Torah in order to save somebody else, but I don't know if that's applicable to illicit relationships. Because, as we know, the Gemara says in Tractate Sanhedrin, page 74a, that one of the three cardinal sins is illicit relationships, and one is supposed to, is not allowed to sacrifice, is, is, is supposed to sacrifice their life in order not to transgress that particular thing. But perhaps maybe Avram and Torah is before the Torah was given. And before the Torah was given, maybe the rules were different. I don't know, I'm not sure. But the principle, the principle, saying, the principle we learn from this medrash is, is, is that one is allowed to transgress the Torah in order to save somebody else. What do you want to say, man? Uh, I, I, I agree with you because it seems to me that 3,000 years ago, the customs were completely different to what we do now. But Abraham did that twice. He took it to uh, the Pharaoh, he gave his wife, then he went to an immense... 3,300 and whatever years, 20 years ago, more than that, before the Torah was given. But, uh, well, no, what I'm trying to say is that the customs of the time might have been completely different. That when you went into a foreign country and you had a beautiful wife, there's a chance that the Pharaoh or the king is going to take her. And that's a risk that you took. The other risk is this way. Why take your wife and put her in danger? Leave her behind the Canaan. You don't have to, you can bring the food back with you. You don't have to put her into danger. So, in, in, in some cases, it seems to me that Abraham was also dysfunctional. In other words, the, the other thing that he did was to send his wife and his eldest son to die in the desert, which was a good thing to do. Okay, right, that's a bit of that's a bit of I, I, I hear you. I'm making a different point. My point is before the mitzvahs, after the mitzvahs, but I'm not prepared to discuss it. That's not the halacha. That's not okay. So now, what I want to do is like this, is that I saw in a recent, um, recent article in Tradition, uh, volume number 43, number one, spring 2010, 
There's an article by Rabbi Jeder of Life called uh, um, Sacrificing the Few to Save the Many. And so, so this gives us reason to discuss that topic now that we've discussed this measure. And I'd like to read the beginning of the article just to tell you how he sets up the, uh, the question. And this is the question that we want to deal with this moral dilemma. And uh, the principle being is whether one is allowed to transgress the Torah, but in a specific way, in order to save somebody else. So here, our idea today like this, is that the, the date 9-11 is indelibly imprinted upon the national consciousness of America. The horrific loss of life in the terrorist attacks upon the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center was an unforgettable tragedy. The attack upon the Pentagon, the nerve center of military security, exposed the vulnerability of the nation's defense apparatus. But it was the fourth thwarted attack that is remembered for heroism of the victims. A domestic passenger flight from Newark International Airport to San Francisco United Airlines flight number 93 was hijacked by terrorists some 45 minutes into the flight. The hijackers breached the cockpit, overpowered the pilots, and taking control of the aircraft, directed it towards Washington, D.C. The hijacker's intended target is thought to be to have been the White House or possibly the Capitol. The terrorist master plan apparently called for carrying out that attack simultaneously with the attack upon the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. However, due to airport congestion, the airplane was delayed on the ground more than a half hour. During the course of the hijacking, flight attendants and passengers using GTE phones and cell phones succeeded in making numerous calls to family and friends as a result of which they learned of the other terrorist attacks. Okay. The passengers apparently, on the basis of a vote, determined to seize the controls of the plane from the hijackers. On the ensuing events, little is known with certainty. Early reports conjectured that the passengers were successful in overtaking the plane and that they knowingly caused the plane to crash in order to prevent greater loss of life. Strikingly, the mother of one of the passengers, herself a United Airlines flight attendant, left a message on her son's cell phone urging an attempt to take over the aircraft. Much later, a report issued by a government investigating commission gave no indication that the passengers broke through the cockpit door, but it made it clear that the passengers' actions thwarted the plans of the terrorists, which we know. Right? Recordings of the cockpit conversations revealed that the terrorists feared that they would imminently lose control and debated whether to crash the plane immediately or whether to delay such action. The passengers' death certificate states that the cause of death is homicide and those of the hijackers list suicide as the cause of death. It is unclear whether the hijackers ultimately did crash the plane deliberately or whether they simply lost control. Had the passengers been successful in gaining control of the plane, the ending might have well been much happier. Among the passengers was an aviation executive who had extensive experience in cockpit as a private, uh, private pilot. Another passenger was experienced in an air traffic controller with the, uh, with the Air National Guard. Given those facts, there is scant reason to question the halachic propriety of the course of action taken by the passengers. Far more complex is the issue of purposely shooting down the plane and thereby causing the death of the innocent passengers. Now, he says like this, Air Force and Air National Guard fighter jets were unable to intercept the planes headed to the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, but indications are there that they would have reached the fourth plane in time to prevent it from reaching Washington. The option of shooting down the commercial jet was certainly given serious consideration and the decision to do so may have actually have been reached. 
So the question here is, uh, according to Allah, if one is faced with such a situation where there is a plane that's hijacked by terrorists that is being flown into a, the World Trade Center or the Pentagon, where there are more people in the building than there are in the plane, is it, within, is it halakhically permissible to shoot down the plane by the Air Force, thereby killing the, thereby killing the passengers in the plane and stopping the attack? That's the question of the halakha that I'd like to talk about this evening. And I'll basically say what uh, Rabbi Black writes in this article. Okay? So, the question is, firstly, is what is the question? What's the issue? So he says that the issue is contingent upon a Rambam. In Hilchus Yisodiyat Torah, the laws of Yisodiyat, the foundations of the Torah, chapter 5, Halacha number 5. The Rambam says like this, If the non-Jews say, they are, the, the situation is, is that the non-Jews are attacking uh, a group of Jewish people. And they say to them, Give us one of you, and we will kill them, that person. And if you don't give us one of you, then we will kill everybody. So what should one do in such a case? Says the Rambam, they should say that we will all die and they should not give up one Jewish soul to their captors. However, let's say they say, give us so-and-so. We want so-and-so. That's the person that we want to kill. So, or or we will kill all of you. So now he says like this. If this person is liable for the death penalty, Kisheva ben Bichri, which we'll dis- we will learn in a second, like the story of Sheva ben Bichri, then they have to give him away. We shouldn't tell him to do this. If he's not obligated to the death penalty, they all have to die. They are not allowed to give away even one person even one Jew. That's what the Rambam says is the law in that situation. Okay? So now the question is, what's the issue? The, the issue hinges upon a, a, um, a statement of the rabbis, which is a, uh, a machlokis, which is quoted in, in uh, Sanhedrin, page 72, B, I think, I believe, or maybe not, I'm not sure. Um, and the story goes like this. In that Gemara, there is a dispute, it's a, there is a dispute about, in the, it's quoted in the Yerushalmi, there is a dispute between Rav Yerchanan and Rav Slokish. So, what happened was that there was a story in, in Shmuel, and Yoav was chasing Sheva ben Bichri. Sheva ben Bichri apparently was guilty Sheva ben Bichri was apparently guilty of, of um, rebelling against King David. And so therefore he was slighted for, for death. And so Sheva ben Bichri took siege of a city. Sorry, uh, Yoab, the general of, of, the, of the king's forces, took siege of a city. And he said, give us Sheva ben Bichri, and if you don't, we will destroy the entire city. That's what happened. So what is the din in such a case? Asks the after Talmud, what's the din in such a case? Do you give away Shem Ben Bichri or not? 
So, Resvaki says, you're allowed to give him away because he's liable for the death penalty because he rebelled against the king. Rabbi Yochanan says, you're allowed to give him away even if he's not liable for the death penalty because they have chosen one person. If they have chosen one person, since that person is slighted for death either way, whether he gets, uh, whether he's given away or he's not given away, therefore you're allowed to give him away. The Rambam learns like Rosh Lakish. The Rambam says that the halacha follows Rosh Lakish, that the only way that one is allowed to give him this person away is only if he is anyway liable for the death penalty. That's what the, uh, that's what the Rambam says. <coughs> now, says Rabbi Bleich, Sheva ben Brichi was doomed to die in any event. Since Sheva would perish together with the other inhabitants of the deceased city, refusing to deliver him to the hands of the enemy would have served to spare his life for only a brief period. Right? It is evident that the discussion of the Palestinian Talmud is predicated upon the premise that it is forbidden to cause the laws of even Chayashah, a brief or limited period of longevity, anticipation of a particular individual, in order to preserve the normal longevity anticipation of a multitude of individuals. Says Rabbi Bleich, that you see from this Rambam like this. What's the case? You have a group of people that say, give us so-and-so. Should we give him away or not? If you don't give him away, we will kill the whole group of people. So, Reshwakish, or the Rambam says, one is only allowed to give him away only if he is liable for the death penalty. But if he's not liable for the death penalty, one is not allowed to give him away. Okay? So now, let's say he's not liable for the death penalty. So one is not allowed to give him away, right? So what happens if we say, no, we're not giving him away? So what happens? Everybody dies, right? So wh- what did we save from this person that they wanted? This group of people wanted this person. How did we save him? What did we do to save him? Everybody died anyway, and he died. So what did we do to save him? The only thing we did is we prolonged his life. If we would have given him away, then he would have died immediately. Now that we refused to give him away, so they had to go and besiege the whole city and fight with them and then take him and then kill him later. So all we did was is prolong his life. But he would have, been, he would have died anyway. Right? So therefore, the Talmud is assuming, and the Rambam is assuming, that one is not allowed to give up somebody else's life, even if it's a momentary, and even if it will save a group of people. Permanently. Yeah? It always like this. These people are coming and saying like this. Give us so-and-so. If you don't give us so-and-so, we will kill you all. So what's the option? Everybody lives except so-and-so. Or everybody dies, including so-and-so. So the Rambam is saying that everybody dies, including so-and-so. That's what we should pick. Why? Because if we give away so-and-so, we are taking away an hour of his life. And we don't have a right to take away an hour of his life, even if in the process we'll be saving a hundred people. But that'd be short in the unlocked. Yeah. We're not allowed to uh, uh, shorten his life 
in order in order to shorten in order not to shorten our life. That's what the Rabbim is saying. In other words, uh, uh, um, a, an expected life of a regular average longevity is worth just as much as a life which is not an average longevity, a life that may be even an hour or ten minutes. Okay? That is what the... That is what the... Um, the, the, the Rambam says. That's what the Rambam says. Now, we see this principle even more. We see this principle many times. For example, we have the famous dispute between Rabbi Akiba and Ben Petura, which we spoke about in the past, in Bob Metziah 62. So there, in Bob Metziah 62, it says that what happens if you have two people in the desert? They're walking in the desert and they have one bottle of water. Right? They have one bottle of water. And that bottle of water is enough only for one of them. If one of them drinks it, the other one will die. If they both drink it, they will both die. So who should have the water? So the Gemara says, that Ben Petura said, It's better that they should both drink it and die and that one should not see the death of the other of his friend. That's what Ben Petura says. Comes along Rabbi Akiva and he says no. Rabbi Akiva said, your brother shall live with you. Your life comes before the the life of your friend. Says Rabbi Akiva no. The bottle of water should be drunk by the owner of the water. The one that owns the water should drink it. Why? Because his life comes first before the other person's life. Right? Your life comes first. So, so I, what about the fact that the Torah says in Parshas Kiddoshim, uh, you have to love your neighbor as yourself. So we must say, that Rabbi Akiva holds that one is obligated to love one's neighbor as themselves, but they're not obligated to love their neighbor more than themselves. And therefore, if they give away the water, they are loving their neighbor more than themselves. Therefore, they should take the water for themselves. That's what Rabbi Akiva must hold. And also, simply put, it's just simply not true. As we, say, as we mentioned before many times, the Marshal says in Tractate Shabbos on page 30, uh, 31. Maybe it's, yeah, I think it's 31. Maybe 35. I don't have a shot in front of me. Um, in Tractate Shabbos, he says, the Marshal says there, that there is no such thing as That's why Hillel said, what you hate, do not do to your friend. Asks the Marshal, that is Vahaftal Erecha Kamocha. Answers the Marshal, so then, so then if that's Vahaftal Erecha Kamocha, why did Hillel say it in Aramaic in the negative? Answers the Marshal, no, the Vahaftal Erecha Kamocha only obligates us not to do negative things that we wouldn't want to do to ourselves, such as taking revenge. But to actually love our neighbor as ourselves, that we don't have to do. 
actively. And what's the proof? Prophet Messiah 62. That that your life comes before. That's why Rabbi Akiva says, drink the water first. That's what the Mashur says. Then drink the Shabbos. Page 31, I think. Right? So therefore, we have this dispute between the Rabbi Akiva and Ben Petula. Asks the Chazonish the following question. The Chazonish is found in the Lekutim in um, page 494 in Choshen Mishpat, number 20. So the Chazonish here says like this. He says like this, according to Rabbi Jader Bach's explanation, the Chazanish is bothered by a question. Rabbi Akiva has a good claim. Rabbi Akiva is saying good. That your life should come first. Why should, uh, why should, why should my, his life come before mine? So what does Ben Petura hope? What does Ben Petura hope? What do you mean drink the water? That both of them should drink the water and they both should die. What happened to Rabbi Akiva's time? Rabbi Akiva has a good claim. Right? It's my water. I'm going to drink my water. I come first. What is Nefetura answer to that? That's what, uh, that is the question that, that he asks. So says the, uh, says the Chazonish, says the Chazonish, V'hacha time of Nefetura, the reason for Nefetura is like this, the Kivin the Chaya Shah L'Shneah. They are both going to live if they drink the water. So let's give the following example. Let's say, right, they don't drink the water at all. How long are they living? Until dehydration sets in. Until their body shuts down. Let's give them an hour, right? They're going to live an hour. Let's say they both drink the water. How long are they going to live? Okay, let's say we give them another half hour, right? Everybody gets a half a bottle, another half an hour. So what happens if they both drink the water? They're both going to die in the end, but they're going to live for another extra half hour, says the Chazonish. Right? If one of them drinks the water, then the other one will die the hour, in an hour, and the other one will go and get back to, uh, to the circle, okay? <laughs> right? But if they both drink the water, each one will have another half an hour. So... It says, that means what? That there'll be temporal life. There'll be temporary life for the both of them if they drink the water. In the Kaimalana, we pass in, like the Gemara says in Yuma 85a, right, that if a person gets trapped under the rubble, once we're talking about the topic already, and on Shabbos, one is allowed to transgress the Shabbos in order to save the person who's been crushed by the building that collapsed on top of them, even if the person's only going to live an extra five minutes. Chayesha, temporary life. In Cain, if that's the case, Ein Chayolam Shiloh, Doicha Chayesha, Shel Chavero. Says Ben Petura, Ben Petura was like this. Okay. If the guy drinks the whole water himself, what happens? He lives. And the other one dies. If he shares the water, then 
they both live a little longer. So, what's the, what's the equation? It's my life versus him living a little longer. Right? Says Ben Petura, if that's the case, since every moment of life is of inestimable value, therefore, I cannot say that I should come before him. In such a case, if I can extend his life while I'm also extending my life, even though I'm not going, even though the person is not going to live for the normal longevity, then he's not allowed to keep all the water for himself. Right? But Ben Petula agrees to Rabbi Akiva that all, if all the water did was just save one person, then of course I come first. For example, for example, says Rabbi Bleich, what happens if they both had an antidote to a, a snake bite? Right. Who should get it, according to Ben Petula? Says the Chazonish, the person that should get it is the one that owns the antidote. Why? It's silly to share, to give each one half the antidote, because what does that do? That does nothing. Absolutely nothing. So therefore, the only question is, who should live, me or him? So if the question is whether who should live, me or him, the owner of the antidote should live. Right? However, by the case of the water, the, the case of the water is unique, because it's not a question of who should live. It's also a question of who should live for a little while. Once, it, once both people are going to live for a little while, the owner of the water can't say, I'm going to live longer. And therefore, he has to share the water. That's what Ben Petura holds. Ben Petura agrees to Rabbi Akiva that my life comes first, but not in the case of the water. The case of the water is unique. Rabbi Akiva holds no that if, uh, if my life comes first, even when it's versus a temporary life of somebody else, and therefore for self-preservation, I'm allowed to take the water for myself, even though the other person is going to die. As once somebody said to me the other day, I don't want to be in the desert with you. <laughs> anyway. We are in what? We are in the desert. <laughs> we are in the desert, right. We're in the desert. We got plenty of water, though, by the yeah, Alright. So anyway, so that that's that's basically the smart of the Chazanish the way that he says it. The uh the next thing that Rabbi Bleich says, I, I don't understand because it doesn't make so much sense because that's not what the Chazanish says actually. Rabbi Bleich wants to make the following claim. He wants to say that this is all fine and dandy when we're talking about self preservation. Right? This is all fine and dandy when we're talking about self preservation. That can excuse me of ignoring somebody else's life, even if somebody else's life is temporary, right? It would then follow that if the container of water belongs to a third party, what do you do in such a case? When the person with the water is no longer has to preserve himself, what do they do? Who should they give the water to? Says Rabbi Bleich, everybody will agree. It would then follow that if the container of the water belongs to a third party who is not in danger of perishing as a result of dehydration, that person, even according to Rabbi Akiva, must divide the water equally between the two persons at risk. 
He says that he has to divide the water equally between the two people. Why? Because it's like a case of triage. Two patients come in into the emergency room, both of them at the exact same time in the exact same condition. They're both suffering from dehydration, they're both the same age, they're both Kahani and whatever. They're both exactly the same. No difference. Right? Who do you give the water to? And it's not a question of self-preservation because i got plenty of water. I just don't have enough for the both of them. Says so, Rabbi even Rabbi Akiva would agree that of course that uh, you cannot ignore the temporary life of each person. Therefore, you have to divide the water between the both of them. Because if you divide the water, each one will live a little longer than they would have otherwise lived. And you don't have a right to pick one over the other. To administer, to give them the health care, to give them the, the medicine, to give them the oxygen or whatever. That's what, I mean, that's what he would hope. Yeah. The principle that emerges is that a person dare not ignore the high shore, the temporary life of one putative victim, even to carry out, even to carry out the complete rescue of another victim, or even of many such victims. In that situation, if you just said a trash, it doesn't matter that they're in single. Because if one was old and one was young, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's what he says. It doesn't matter. But that's not what the Chazanis says. But you'll see that it doesn't make a difference for the argument that we're trying to make. But that's not what the Chazanis says. The Chazanis says, If a person, one person has water and there's two thirsty people in front of him, then it also depends on Ben Petura will say, give it to the both of them. Give them both the water, let them share it. Why? Because, well, according to Ben Petura, let's say you do give the water to one of them. But Petura anyway says that if one of them has to have the water, they both also have to share it. If even the water belongs to me and I need to drink it, I have to share it with the other guy. So if there's a third guy that gives it to one of them, they, the, the, the one that gets it has to share it with the second one. So of course the third party has to give it to both. That's according to Ben Petura. But according to Rabbi Akiva, he can give it to whoever he wants. Not like Rabbi Bleich. I'm sorry to say it, but maybe I'm misunderstanding something. But he says, according to Rabbi Akiva, he can give it to whoever he wants. Because as soon as the one gets it, if one of them gets it, then he can say, I'm first. I come before the other person. Then here is the Chayiv Litan Le'achot. And he has to give it to one. Right, he has to give it to one. And, and then the other one will decide who he should give it to. However, if, that's only if they're equal. Right. However, if one of them is first, like it says in Horeos Yud Gimel, then he has to give it to the one that proceeds first, because the Mishnah actually gives categories of which one should come first, when it comes into the question, which is not for now, but comes into the question, you have a situation of a Titanic, who do you put on the boat? You don't have enough boats. Alright. Fine. Anyway, what comes out from this is what? We have two cases. One case we have is a group of marauders want a specific individual from the group or else they're going to kill all of them. What do we say to that person? We're not giving that person away. And we will all die, right? So that means what? That we, are, we cannot choose the life of many versus the temporary life of one because that one is going to die anyway. They're just going to live a little bit longer. And we have the same case with this water business. That only in the case where it's an issue of self-preservation... Is it that according to, according to Rabbi Akiva, I keep the water? But if it's not an issue of self-preservation, then according to Rabbi Akiva, I give the water to one of them. Right? So, so therefore, if I, I, I give the water to one of them, 
Because one of them has to live. I can choose which one I want. According to according to Rabbi Kiva, according to Rabbi Baruch saying that I, I, you know, I have to I have to share the water. I'm not sure why he says that. But that's only in the case of saving somebody. But to actively, and let's say they both want water. Am I allowed to go and shoot one and then give the water to the other? That Rabbi Akiva will agree that I don't have to give the water to that person. The fact that, I, let's say there's two people in front of me according to Rabbi Akiva, and even according to the Chazanish, will say that I have to give the water to one of them, right? That's not an act of homicide. I don't have to kill that person. Yeah? That's not an act of homicide. So, so I'm just giving the water to one. But Rabbi Akiva will agree that I'm not allowed to go actively and kill the other one of them in order that the other one should live, right? So therefore, Rabbi Black wants to contend, based upon this, in our situation, our case, where we're sitting in a fighter jet, right, and we can shoot down this plane full of passengers that's heading towards the trade center. In the trade center, there's going to be 5,000 people. Chassashon, they're all going to die, and on the plane, there are 50 people. So can I kill the 50 to save the 5,000? So what's the issue, says, uh, says, says the Rebbe The issue is, is that can I save, can I sacrifice the 50 lives for the purpose of saving the 5,000 lives? Says the Rebbe I don't have a right to do that. Who said that I can do that? Who said that I have the right to sacrifice even one? One doesn't know how much a life is worth. So who am I to decide that 50 people are worse than 5,000? Therefore, one is not allowed to shoot on that plane. That's what he wants to claim. Okay? Okay. The o- so, so the only time... Maybe you claim the following thing. There are times when one is allowed to actively go and kill somebody in order to save a life. And that is Sun Engine 73. If a person is a pursuer, right? If we see a person who's trying to commit murder, so uh, so in order to save the in order to save the victim, one is allowed to kill the perpetrator because he's a pursuer, he's a writer. In that case, he's considered to be a writer. Right. So uh, says says Bleich, that if that's the case, then perhaps maybe we can claim that the plane is a writer. The plane is a pursuer. So, that's true. We can certainly claim that the plane is pursuing the 5,000. It's pursuing the World Trade Center. And certainly the pilot can be shot. If the, if the, if the, uh, if the jet can uh, shoot the pilot or the terrorist through the window, then of course, right, but the question is, but the, the thing is, we cannot consider the passengers to be a writer. We cannot consider the passengers to be a pursuer. And therefore, one is not allowed to kill the passengers anyway. Because the passengers themselves don't have any intent and don't have any uh, direction or, or complicity in trying to kill the 5,000 people in the World Trade Center. They don't have any such intent. So why would you one wouldn't be allowed to shoot them? So I wasn't sure about this. So I called him up last night. I called Rabbi Black last night to ask him, uh, you know, what, what, he, what he thinks. I wanted to claim like this. I said to him that if you have a runaway train, 
somebody is on the, on the train tracks. So the train is going to run over the person, right? The trolley. We're going to, uh, hopefully we're going to get to the trolley. Yeah. The train is going to get to the person. Now, am I allowed to uh, shoot down that train? Am I allowed to stop the train to derail it from the tracks? No. So even though the train is an inanimate object and it doesn't have intent to, to kill the person, but the train is going to kill the person. Therefore, it makes it a pursuer by the very nature of how it's acting. So therefore, of course, I'm allowed to shoot down the train. So I wanted to say that everything that's in the train is part of the train. And so therefore, if I shoot down the train or the plane, I'm shooting down the train and the plane. So am I going to claim that the chairs in the plane, the bolts, the lights in the, in the, in the cockpit are, are, are pursuers? Yes, why? Because they're all part of the plane. So the people are also part of the plane. So the people are part of the plane. I'm shooting down the plane. I'm not killing the people. So Rabbi Bryce said, no, you're wrong. <laughs> the plane is part of the plane. The people in the plane are not part of the plane. So what can I say? What can I say? He, he says the people themselves, they don't, they, they, you know, if you would have a parachute to me, if you have a parachute, and you open up the plane, you throw the people off the plane, the plane is still going to fly into the building. They're not pursuing. The plane itself in its entirety is a pursuer. It is going into the building. But the people in the plane are not going, are not. Are not. They don't want to be there. They're not part of the whole thing. Therefore, now I shoot down the plane because you're going to kill the people that are in the plane <coughs> and you're going to sacrifice them for the sake of saving the, the World Trade Center people. So therefore, we cannot qualify them as a pursuer. Therefore, we have no excuse whatsoever to shoot down this, uh, this plane. That's what he wants to claim. Fine. So he says like this, this is an interesting point. He, he quotes this uh, Philippa Foote. Apparently she's a, uh, a famous person. Um, she published in the Oxford Review, number 5, in 1967, quote, The Problem of Abortion and the Doctrine of Double Effect. The case that she, uh, that she put forth was the, uh, was the following case. What happens if you have a situation where is involved the driver is dri driving a trolley around a bend? Alright, and there, there is, as soon as he drives the trolley around the bend, he sees that there are five workmen in, engaged in repairing the track. Hmm. And the trolley is going to run them over and kill them. Yeah. Right. So, what does she do? Well, what does he do to meet the person? He steps on the brakes to stop the uh, trolley before the people get killed. Problem is, of course, the brakes are not working. So he has an option. What he can do is he can switch the trolley to a different track. Yeah. But there's one person that's standing there on the track on the other on the other side. So if he switches it to the other track, that person is not going to have time to get away, and they're going to get killed. So what should you do in such a situation? Should the driver of the trolley? Not do nothing, do nothing and have the five people get killed or switch it to the other track and have one person get killed. In effect, sacrificing one to save the five. What should you do in such a case? That's the shiloh that she asked. Do you want the answer? What? Do you want the answer? The answer that she gave? The answer that she gave is that she flips the switch. 
Which is what? Which means one person is killed and five is uh, not killed. However, if there was a bridge on top, and there was a fat man on that bridge, and you could push him off the bridge, and he would fall in front of the trolley, and the trolley would stop. Therefore, one person would uh, die, but the other five wouldn't. That's immoral. You can't do that. You mean take a gun and shoot the one person? No, just push him off the bridge. Oh, push him off the bridge. Yeah. That, that, oh, that's, that's, that's a morally indefensible action. Uh-huh. Okay, so that's what he's signing. That's, that's from okay, so it's it sounds like it sounds like the Chazanish seems to kind of like her also, but we'll, we'll wait, a, wait a minute for the Chazanish first. Before the Chazanish, here in the notes, he quotes a case. He says that there was a case in World War II, a German spy ring consisting of double agents, supplied the German government with information concerning the areas which one V1 and V2 rockets were falling. So you had, you had German spies who were not really German spies, but they were pretending like they were, they were double agents. They were spies for the British government, but they were also spies for the Germans. And so they were telling Germans information as German spies, but they were really feeding them false information because they were really British spies. Okay? So it was proposed that the double agents transmitting information to the German military, military report that most of the rockets had fallen well north of London, so that the future rockets would be aimed a number of miles to the south. They should tell them the rockets fell north, so that the next time they should shoot the rockets south. Why? The purpose was to assure that the future rockets would fall in Kent, Surrey, or Sussex, where there would be far fewer casualties than in London. So you're telling the Germans, shoot the rockets over there, don't shoot them over there, because if you shoot them over there, they're going to kill much, they're going to kill much more people than if they shoot them over there. So, the Shaila is, are you allowed to do that? Are you allowed to do that? Are you allowed to tell the Germans, go shoot over there, because over there there's going to be less people killed? The Germans are not, they're not holding, they're not drinking, they're not thinking about sh shooting the rockets to Sussex. Right? But in Sussex there's only two and a half people. Or whatever, how many people there are. In London there's a whole big, uh, mommy's a big city. So you tell them, you shoot it in Sussex, but the people in Sussex, they never dreamed of people in Sussex, nothing, nothing wrong with them. So they died, so what you're basically in effect doing is, is that you're telling the Germans to sacrifice the people in Sussex for the birth of people in London. So he says that the, um, the proposal was reportedly placed before the cabinet of Herbert Morrison, the Home Secretary. Churchill was abroad at the time, but the cabinet rejected the proposal on the grounds that the British government was not justified in choosing to sacrifice unendangered citizens in order to save others. So he's not masking uh, Albert Morrison to, uh, to, what's her name, to Philip Foot. He says you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to uh, redirect, so to speak, the rockets to uh, a lesser victim. So what happened in the end? In the end what happened was, is that the, um, um, despite the cabinet veto, the deception team continued with their efforts to trick the Germans into, into, into correcting the aim and the range of the German rockets. The, the, the double agents didn't listen. So Morrison, was with furious indignation, once again brought the matter before the cabinet. He is reported to have exclaimed, quote, Who are we to act as God? Who are we to decide that one man shall die because he lives on the south coast, while another survives because he lives in London? Unquote. That's what he tied it. Okay, so not like Philip, uh, not like, uh, not like uh, Philip Foot. But there's another case. There is another case in the Chazonish. There's, there's another case in Coventry. 
Okay. Okay. So what happened was that they uh, they had a Nigma machine so they could read the um, all the instructions coming through from the Luftwaffe, and so um, they Churchill decided that if they w they were going to attack Coventry, and if he sent up the fighters to um, save Coventry, they would realise that their codes had been broken. Uh -huh. So he didn't. He didn't bring up the fighters. So thousands of people died in Coventry as a result of that action. Right. So he could have saved them, but he didn't. Okay, but the other people are going to die. He was looking at the total picture. Right, okay. So the Chazanish has a case like this. In, in number 25 in Sanhedrin, we have a few more minutes before we conclude. The Chazanish's case is the same, almost the same as as, uh, as Philip Foot's case. In number 25, he says, like A person, a bystander, sees an arrow that's being shot at many different people. Okay? So, so, the Yochulato, so the Tzad Echad, the Yaragrag Echad, Shibitzad Echad. He can redirect the, uh, the arrow to go in a different direction, but in another direction, there's a person standing there. So either, let's say, a hundred people will die on this side from the arrow, or from the bullet, or the rocket, or the grenade, or whatever, and on the other side, only one person. Is the person allowed to redirect the arrow to the other side? That's the, uh, the Chazanish's case. So the Chazani says something very interesting here. So like this. The Efsher, maybe you could say, this is not similar to our original case where we give one person away in order to save everybody else. Why? Over there, when you say, go take uh, so-and-so in order to save us, that's a mean act. Why? Because we're actually giving the enemy somebody that they should kill. We're not really saving somebody with this action. By taking one individual out of the group and giving him to the enemy, we're not actually saving the rest. We're giving one person away. Right? What happens is that the consequence of us giving the person away, the other people are being saved. But the act itself is not an essential act of saving somebody else. And, they, and also, the saving of the others is directly connected to the murder of this person. But uh, redirecting the arrow, that is an act of salvation. The arrow is going towards five people, and when I redirect the arrow to the other side, I'm doing an act of salvation, because let's say there was one person who was not standing over there on the other side. On one side there's one, on the other side there's five, and I redirect the agent of, 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 of kill from, from the five. If there was no one person on the other side, that in itself would have been essentially an act of salvation. I saved those five. So perhaps maybe even though there is one that's standing on the other side, I can claim that I'm, I'm doing an act of salvation. And it is not connected at all to the fact, and it's circumstantial that the one dies. So maybe we can make the same claim in the case of the trolley. When I redirect the trolley <coughs> from the five to the one, it's an act of salvation, it's not an act of murder, and the act of murder is only, an, is, is only a, 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 a um, subsequential act. 
But you know, I'm going to tell you what's going on. Let me finish. Right, right, rock after the Nikon Imsa Bitarach and Nefesh Mishrael. Okay, fine, so there happens to be somebody else there. So that, that's what he says. And then it sounds like he changes his mind. He says, he, he changes his mind, which is what I think that Rabbi Black claims at the end of the article, which we're going to say is, in, in, we're, 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 let's conclude because we're out of time. No so Rabbi Black says like this. He says that he doesn't 100% understand this Chazonish. And he wants to make the following claim, which is more complex than the way that I'm going to present it, but we're going to conclude with this. He says like this, when I'm, doing, when, when I'm doing an act of salvation, I'm allowed to sacrifice, I'm never allowed to sacrifice one for many. Because as we said before, one person's life is of inestimable value. And therefore, who knows if that one life, how much it's worth versus the 50 lives that are worth. So therefore, one is never allowed to actively sacrifice somebody in order to save the others. Meaning, that one is actively not allowed to, if you redirect the arrow, then you're shooting the arrow at that one person. That's an active act of homicide. If I shoot down the plane, what I'm doing is, is that I'm, I'm actively killing those people. If I redirect the trolley, right, what I'm doing, or if I give somebody away to be shot, that's an act, that, 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 that is an act of, of murder. And that is never permissible under any circumstances, even if it will save many, many others, just to do it to one. The only way that I can do it is, if it's not an act of murder, that's the only way that I can save one person. For example, in the case of triage, in the case where people come into the emergency room and they all need service, and there is not enough service for them so that I can provide service for one and not provide service for the other because providing service for one is not an act of murder of the other. It's just that I can only save one person. If five people are drowning and I jump into the water and I save one, I'm not me killing the others. I'm only saving one because that's all I can do. So an act of salvation is always permitted to, 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 and, and, and ignoring the rest because I can only do what I can do. But an actual active purposeful act of murder where I expire somebody in order to save somebody else, that is never permitted because even temporary life is just as important as, 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 a, as, a, as a, a normal long life and one life is just as important as the lives of many. That's his conclusion. And therefore one is not allowed to shoot down this time. That's what I wanted to share with everybody this evening. Have a good time.